This is No BS, a series of authentic conversations about the world of work. My name is Dr. Carlin Borosenko. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I work with individuals and organizations all over the world to help them create amazing work experiences. And I'll be honest, in the work I do, I run across my fair share of nonsense. In this series, we are going to call BS on the things that are just completely unnecessary in the workplace and explore how we can do them better. Ready to go? Let's get started. As a way to intro this conversation, I want to share a story about the most viral tweet I have ever sent. It wasn't one of those things where I said something particularly profound or even controversial. It just happened while I happened to be sitting at a bar killing time before a networking event, and I scrolled through Twitter, and I saw a tweet from a former Miss America that read something like this. Dear every man in America, I'm sitting at a bar by myself because I want to. Please be self-aware enough to know when we are simply not interested in carrying on a conversation. Sincerely, all women. And I didn't think too much of it at first, but I looked through the replies and there was a reply from uh, Gad Sad, who I had no idea who he was, but apparently he's a pretty controversial dude. Uh, Google him if you like. But he responded, if you're sitting in a bar, it is perfectly reasonable for people to think that you are open to social interactions. It takes a lot of courage for most men to approach women. If they do so politely, act kindly rather than as a smug schmuck to half of humanity. Sincerely, Dr. Sad, a man. And when I saw that response, I said, yes, I agree with him, absolutely. And so I tweeted back, I love this response. I'm one of those women who prefers to be alone when I'm at a bar, but I also hate the assumption that every man is the same or that they don't struggle with things like confidence in these situations. Send out that tweet. Didn't think too much of it, put away my phone, went to a networking event, and all of a sudden, I feel my phone buzzing in my pocket, and it's because I'm getting notification after notification that this tweet is going viral. And I was like, what the what? Is this an even controversial thing to say? Now, my perspective on this is twofold. The first bit of context I'll give you is that I am one of those women that sits alone at a bar an awful lot. I travel a lot for the work I do, and usually at the end of a day after I work with a company or do a training or do a presentation or what have you, the easiest thing for me to do is go down to the bar, grab a quick bite to eat and maybe a pint or two before heading back up into my room. And in the process of doing that, I end up in a lot of conversations with random people. Now, I wear a decently sized wedding ring on my hands. It's no secret that I'm not available, but that's not what these guys want most of the time. Most of the time, they're just bored too, and they're at the bar alone too, and you strike up a conversation. And even times when I have not really felt like talking to anyone, it's often a really good break. And, you know, I've met some really amazing people on the road. So I had that perspective. But the other perspective that's more important here is that in my coaching work, I coach a lot of men. In fact, men probably make up probably 60 to 70% of my coaching clients. That has not been purposeful. It's just worked out that way. And I'll tell you what, I cannot think of a single man that I have ever coached that has not had issues with confidence. And it's not something that's talked about all that often that men struggle with confidence too. 
And so when I pulled my phone out and saw this tweet was going viral, I happened to be sitting at a table at this networking event with three other men. And again, I hadn't planned it. It just worked out that way. I was the only woman. And they kind of asked me what was going on. I said, well, this tweet I sent defending the honor of men is going viral. And they asked me about it. I said, well, all I really said is that men struggle with confidence too. And one of the gentlemen at the table, he looked at me and he had the most sincere look on his face. And he said, thank you for saying that. It almost seemed like a relief for him that a woman would acknowledge that men have confidence issues too. Now, I don't want to diminish the issues around confidence that so, so many women face. It is very, very real. And women do tend to struggle with confidence at a rate that is about 10% higher than men. However, that still leaves an awful lot of men with all different types of experiences at all different levels of the organization that are struggling with these issues of confidence, and they simply don't have as many resources as women have to turn to to fix them. And so I thought in the back of my head, man, wouldn't it be great if I got a guy who struggled with confidence to come on the podcast and talk about it from his perspective. And lo and behold, a couple weeks later, I happened to be interviewing my guest today for a completely different topic for an article I was writing. And somehow we stumbled across the topic of imposter syndrome and how he had suffered with it and what that was like for him. And so I asked him, if he would be open to having a conversation about it. And I'm so grateful that he agreed to share his experience. All right. Well, I think we'll just jump right into it then. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your background and experience. Sure. Um, So my name is Eric Machnez, and currently I have been a HR, strategic HR change management consultant for the past year at a small consulting firm in North New Jersey. Uh, Prior to my HR career, I worked uh, in higher education for about 15 years, um, one at a small uh, private institution on the shore in New Jersey. And then I finished my higher ed career at a mid-level management uh, level, or I finished my my student affairs career as a mid-level manager at a small private Catholic institution uh, in New Jersey. Great. And we got in onto the topic of imposter syndrome because I was interviewing you about something completely different than this. And and it just came up in the topic of conversation. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about when you've experienced imposter syndrome in your career. Sure. I think, you know, having worked in, in higher education for 15 years and specifically the student affairs field, there's a lot of focus about kind of developing who you are holistically, right? And that there's a natural progression from entry level to mid-level to potential director level. And I really felt supported probably for about 13 to 14 years of my student affairs career um, in that all the work that I had done, all my experience was valued and had value. It wasn't until a new manager and director was appointed that I really started to question if what I had done in the past was actually really beneficial to my career at that point, Um, because I was starting to get consistently questioned about what I was doing. And the conversations that I was having with my manager were not, 
this is what you're doing well, this is what you could do better. It was, this is where you're failing. This is where we're not getting along. And it made it really hard for me to really understand and accept the fact that all the work I had done had gotten me this far. And I started to question myself and anyone else I worked with in thinking maybe they were wrong because the environment had become so toxic and the relationship between me and my manager had become so volatile that I really started to question my value to the organization and to the field that I committed 15 years to. And even in the position that I was talking about, I mean, I had made some pretty good progresses and had accomplished some pretty great tasks and had supervised a fair share of people. Um, and all of a sudden, all of that became a big question mark to the extent that even I felt as I began to do some phone interviews because I was trying to remove myself from that situation, that nervousness and the lack of confidence in my skills came across in the phone interview. And I remember there was a specific phone interview I had at that same institution where the interviewer I was familiar with, um, he actually was trying to help me. Um, and I interpreted his questions to me as if I was underqualified. So I removed myself from the process. Um, and then I had some colleagues come to me after the fact and say, why did you do that? Um, because I had misinterpreted what the interviewer was saying within the context of being told for a year and a half that I was not qualified or competent in my position. I, there, there's so much to unpack in that, and I, I've already got so many notes going over here. Um, but the first thing I want to say that is that it sounds like you kind of had boss-induced imposter syndrome. Absolutely. Where you're good for a while, you were good for the whole of your career, and then all of a sudden this new factor came in, and it just totally threw you for a loop. Mm -hmm. What was that like when you first started... Uh, realizing that you were starting to doubt your abilities and doubt your experience under this new boss? Um, I think it changed my approach to work. Um, I think we all kind of laugh and joke on a Monday morning about how we don't want to go to work and how we all want to be independently wealthy. I mean, that's the idea. None of us want to work. But prior to this experience, it was just the idea of going to work. I'd rather just be at home. But I started to recognize that I actually started to dread going to work. I started to develop anxiety about going into work. Um, there was a demonstrated use and an increased use of the PTO that was available to me because I couldn't imagine going into work. Um, and it started to come out and almost became a self-fulfilling prophecy because this individual was questioning my value to the team, had already started telling people that my job could be done as a committee. So I almost found myself when I would be sitting in meetings I almost felt like I didn't need to act a certain way because this person had written me off anyway. So I found that I started to become a little more aggressive in meetings. Um, I started to get frustrated more. Um, I would shut down in certain meetings because I felt like my opinion wasn't valued. Uh, and it ultimately just impacted not only my, my professional relationships, but also I think my personal relationships started to see um, that I was stressed out about work more than it just being work and normal work stress, but it was actually impacting my overall well-being and my relationships with other people. 
You know, I saw an interesting stat yesterday that 37% of bosses will actively avoid giving out positive recognition to people because they think it's their job just to point out flaws with what's going on rather than provide that positive reinforcement or even just say good job when something is going right. It sounds like that was kind of the boss that you had. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm someone, I'm very self-aware. So the, some of the supervisors that I've had in the past have also challenged me and have given me the feedback of, you did this well, how can you do it better next time? And I respond well to that. And that's ultimately, I think, what got me to a mid-level management position, my ability to be comprehensive, um, but also recognize my own challenges and my faults and work on them. This ultimately became, you are doing nothing well, everything you do is wrong. And even when I try to address things in an appropriate way, and I tried to meet that feedback, it still wasn't good enough. So it really just became an exercise in futility for me because I literally felt like nothing that I could do was right. And, and that's ultimately why I began searching for a new position. Um, and it almost got to a point where I think I kind of just gave up on the work that I was doing because nothing that I could do was, was going to help me grow. I mean, I, I had pretty much been told by that manager that he didn't like me from the interview. So it just was compounding again and again where I knew either I needed to leave or something else needed to change. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this positive psychology researcher that I really like. Her name is Michelle Jellin, and she writes about the success mindset at work. And one of the components to that, to having a success mindset, is the belief that your behavior matters in the face of a challenge. And it sounds like you just didn't really believe that your behavior mattered at all. You could do great things and it wouldn't matter. You could do awful things and it wouldn't matter. Is that right? Absolutely. And I mean, it even, it was even to the point where I was trying to explain all the great things I was doing. And it came up in that I felt like I was still doing director level tasks that had been promised that would be taken away from me. So I said, I'm happy to continue doing this because this is the type of worker that I am. Um, but ultimately, I'm going to need more money. And I was told no. And in that relationship, be, being told no was for me interpreted as you don't have value and what you're doing does not have value. Um, especially because the individual said to me, he goes, oh, well, I'll, I'll take it into consideration and I'll look at all the information and, and I'll, I'll make it an informed decision. And within the next day, he had made it clear that there was going to be no raise for me. So obviously the decision was not informed. Um, And I think part of that also was um, this idea that then I became a pariah because not only was I a poor worker, I was then expecting more money. And in the field of student affairs, the joke is that, um, you know, you don't go into this for the money. You don't go into the field for the money. So I immediately was then labeled as kind of this greedy person because I actually had asked for more money for what I believe I was valued at. So it just, it was, if if I could connect it all, it's every opportunity that I had to either identify my value or try to explain my value or assert my value was met with a negative response. So at the end of the day, I questioned my value, both short-term and long-term to the organization. Now, I think um, because I've, I, I do a number of 
discussions around people getting fired for kind of crazy reasons. I have a lot of those conversations. And the response that I usually get from many HR people or managers is that, well, if they were performing, this wouldn't even be a problem. They, they must have been underperforming. And why would you believe their side of the story if it obviously just doesn't work out? And, and so I think that I, I kind of want to dispel this idea that you weren't performing up until this point a little bit, if we can. Um, how had your performance reviews been for the first 14 years of your career before this new boss came in? I would actually, so they were positive with, you know, the fair share of this is what you need to do better. This is how you need to, to grow. And what I will actually say is even with the new director, so ultimately the process was set up as you wrote a self-appraisal and then your supervisor reviewed it and then provided their notes. And I remember going into that performance appraisal meeting expecting highly negative feedback. And ultimately what it was is it was verbatim my self-appraisal with the questions of, you know, well, how come you feel that way? Or why did you include this? And I would have to provide examples, which was surprising to me because at the end of the day, if you've been observing my behavior, you would know why I feel this way about myself. But I was actually surprised that there was no negative feedback. But in retrospect and looking at the way my career finished at that institution, I imagine that the, the manager director in his mind already had established that he was going to find or deliver something that would allow him the opportunity to end my employment. So he didn't feel the need to provide any negative feedback in that performance appraisal. Isn't that interesting that even, even when he had the opportunity to do something, he didn't really necessarily say anything bad. It almost seems as though my understanding of what you just said is that he didn't even really bother to do the performance review. He took your self-evaluation, he added a few questions, and that was that. Do I have that right? Yeah, pretty much. And I would say that, that um, any opportunity prior to that that he tried to give negative feedback, I think I always had a pretty good counter argument. And I think at the end of the day, he was just trying to avoid the conflict um, as it was related to any type of performance with me, because I think he felt that he knew that he would dig himself into a hole um, because, you know, at a time that he tried to give me, he tried to, ultimately I was, he tried to put me on a performance improvement plan, um, but his notes weren't appropriate. So ultimately we left that with me having established kind of my case in that it wasn't appropriate to take those steps. And in that discussion, it had nothing to do with my work performance. I was still delivering against the goals outlined in my job description. Um, it was a personality issue. Mm -hmm. I was given feedback that I didn't say hi to him in the morning. Um, that, you know, I invited certain people to lunch and I didn't invite him. And I had to really make a case that that was not my responsibility within the position. Uh, so it was, it, it was evident to me that the work product that I was delivering was not important. And the fact that, that that PIP was able to make it past his manager as acceptable showed to me that I was ultimately kind of fighting a losing battle. I, I almost laughed out loud when you said he, he said that you didn't say hi to him in the morning because I actually had an experience with an extraordinarily toxic boss. I actually told the story of, of my getting fired but kind of orchestrating my own firing from that position in a previous episode. And one of the primary complaints that she gave me was that I walked by her office one morning and didn't respond when she said hi to me. And she reported me to HR for giving her the silent treatment. 
Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, I'm not functional before 10 a.m. Like, I need, like, several cups of coffee to be functional in the morning. And, like, I, I do not ever remember that happening. And if it had, it was because I was walking to the kitchen to get a cup of coffee. And I was just like, you are the most petty people in the world. It's crazy. Yeah. And I just had a higher expectation of behavior for um, a, someone at a director level. Um, and my previous relationship with my directors, yes, they were personal. Yes, they were close. But we also had the mature response. We had the mature understanding of each other that at the end of the day, we may not be friends or friendly, but we can work together when we need to be. Um, and ultimately, the things that he had said or done or had exhibited unprofessionalism to me didn't make me feel like I needed to engage in him and engage with him on that way because I knew eventually there would come a point where I needed to address some of his behavior and I didn't want there to be any confusion about where we stood in our relationship so I kept a safe distance and I think that's the other thing everyone keeps a safe distance when they start working with someone Um, because within his first week he crossed a personal boundary with me Um, And at that point, that kind of set the tone for the rest of our working relationship. And I was okay and confident in that. Okay. I want to go back to the idea of, of imposter syndrome for a minute, because one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is that I think that we talk a lot and I'm sure you do this, I do this in this industry about women having confidence and women, you know, empowering themselves and being able to do all this. And while it is definitely true that women tend to have issues with confidence at a rate that is higher than men. An awful lot of men have issues with confidence. And I think it's one of the most under acknowledged and under talked about things. And, you know, I coach a lot of men. I, and I coach men of all different experience levels and the confidence issue comes up over and over and over again. I wonder if you could speak about your experience as a man having going through these issues. Sure, absolutely. And I think, um, I was actually thinking about this on the car ride in. So when, when we think about my experience, right? So I'd been in a field, a career field for about 15 years. So I kind of knew the rhythms of that. And then to leave that feeling that all of those 15 years were for naught was one, almost was enough to my confidence. Um, and to be in a position that I never thought I would be without a job, without something lined up, shook me a lot as well. Then we take into consideration that I'm 37 years old, so I'm a little older, searching for a new job, trying to break into a new career, and ultimately being offered a job within three days, not really being able to process my departing my field and my job, but knowing that the practical side of me needed to work because I have bills that I need to pay, transitioning to a new field, a new career in a new environment um, so quickly was ultimately my biggest challenge coming into this role as a consultant was my confidence and lack of it. Because yes, and I, I was able to market it throughout the interview that everything that I did in student affairs was HR related, recruitment, onboarding, training, development. But believing that it would translate to what I do now was something that I didn't believe. Um, And it took a lot for me to be confident in what I was doing. And I think you're right. I think there is this feeling that as a male, I should come in into the corporate world and have this confidence 
and you know the gender role of kind of a male in business comes into the room controls the room dominates the room leaves his impression owns the space that wasn't possible for me especially because one of my colleagues is a business owner and he comes into the room owns the space and he's like he meets the gender role of a, a male business owner can do guy and i came in with this feeling of i wasn't good enough in my old role um i'm probably not good enough for this role when will they get to the point where they realize they've made the, the bad decision and that's i mean that that's 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 the whole point of imposter syndrome yeah so it was almost this feeling of i'm going to be discovered that i'm not the right fit for this at any moment mm -hmm. and so i mean that must have been pretty anxiety producing it was and i remember we did our first offsite, and i was about three months in and my managing director started talking about this idea of how i would potentially be working as an interim hr manager for one of our clients and i excused myself and i went to the bathroom and i cried because i was so nervous because i hadn't really i felt like i hadn't been given a chance to prove myself i felt like this was a huge engagement for me um, and although i appreciated everyone's confidence in my skills i didn't have that confidence because i was still coping with the feelings from my old position and not only would if i got exposed and if i messed up not only would my boss realize that she had made a mistake but I could also potentially lose us a client. So it, it was, there was a lot of pressure there. Um, and I, I, again, it was always that feeling of you're going to do something and someone's going to say they made the wrong decision. Mm -hmm. Do you think that your experience with that boss in particular, kind of knowing that it seems as though he was trying to get you out, translated over into that new environment? Absolutely. Um, it was difficult for me to, um, it was difficult for me to move past that, right? Because although I had received, I sat through a positive performance appraisal, but we still ended up at the point where we're sitting in HR having a discussion about my career future. And ultimately I was provided the opportunity to resign. But up until that point, I thought things were going well. So even in my new position, or I, things weren't necessarily going well, but I felt like I still had job security, right? I still felt supported and that there was a mutual effort on both our parts to at least continue working together. Um, so moving into my new role, there was that question of even when my managing director, who's an amazing woman, was giving me positive feedback, in the back of my head, I thought, is she talking to someone else and saying that I'm actually not doing as good as I'm doing? Because that was the experience I had had for the year and a half previous. There were things that ultimately I thought I was doing well. And as it turns out, they ultimately thought that my position could be done by, you know, three entry level people. So it was really this weird dissonance that was really hard to manage and work through. So you talked a little bit earlier about when you were doing the interview and the interviewer was trying to help you, but you interpreted it completely differently. And I think that really crystallizes the, the difference between sometimes how people are able to present outwardly and look like they have it together and look prepared, but in their head, it's just all over the place and, and chaos, but it doesn't always show outwardly. Um, and that, that to me is, is the core of what imposter syndrome 
feels like. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, and, and it's interesting because starting in a new position, working through the feelings of imposter syndrome, I would think that anyone who visibly saw me within my first few weeks here, first even few months here, they saw someone who was very happy to be at work, um, who was excited about the new opportunities and even some of the reflection, um, you know, through the weekly checkpoints with my boss and talking to my colleagues, you know, they would tell me, Eric, you're doing a great job. You provide such great insight in our meetings. You're going to do great things. But inside I am, my, my head is, is constantly questioning if what I'm doing is right. Am I doing enough? Um, you know, I would go home kind of feeling anxious on if I was doing enough that um, there was this feeling of, you know, I would come in the next morning and, you know, someone, you know, the managing director, Jen, she'd call me into her office and you have that immediate thought of, oh my God, she's firing me, she's firing me, she's firing me. And literally all she wanted to do was just talk to me about, you know, an email or give me a new task and which is normal, right? So I'm, I'm new in a position. It's normal for the managing director to sit you down and say, Hey, this is what I want you to work on. But because of the previous experience, there's, there's that self doubt that's going on inside. And I don't think a lot of people recognize any signs of someone having a challenge or experiencing imposter syndrome, because I don't think it's something that people see because it's so uniquely and innately tied to how the person is feeling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you think, so actually let me phrase it this way. It seems as though you started to, to manage it and, and cope with it better. Am I right about that? Absolutely. Um, go ahead. No. So what turned it around? Actually. So the, I would say the, the interim engagement, actually really helped me grow and recognize the value that I bring one to the organization internally, but also what I can bring to our clients. Um, because at the end of the day, it was very successful and it provided me the opportunity to kind of put to practice what I had learned and demonstrate that the skills that I learned for the 15 years in higher education are applicable to the world of human resources. And I think the best example is I remember we had our quarterly performance. We, we don't necessarily do reviews. It's performance development conversations. Um, and I, I was very nervous at the one at the start of the interim engagement. And I remember three months later, the, the engagement had kind of ended or six months later, but the, the performance review conversation at the beginning of the engagement and at the end was very different. And I remember walking into Jen's office and just feeling over, just very confident in how I had done. And she even acknowledged that. Um, but part of that too, was I was given the grace and the space to honestly talk to Jen and tell her that I was scared. You know, I was nervous that I felt like maybe up to that point, I hadn't been doing what I was supposed to be doing. And every step of the way, Jen was like, it's fine. This is exactly how it was supposed to play out. I'm not nervous at all about you. So I need you to believe that about yourself. So being given the opportunity to talk through it um, and have someone turn around and say, no, Eric, you're actually doing really great um, has helped me adjust and move away from that feeling. 
So it sounds like if I can sum it up a little bit, the thing that helped you move past imposter syndrome was you were given challenges that were maybe a little ambitious and outside your comfort zone, but still achievable. Mm -hmm. And you had the support of a boss that really reinforced that she knew you could do it. And maybe that made you believe that you could do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, I think it's always even reflecting back is constantly reminding myself, one, if, if she wasn't confident in me initially, she wouldn't have hired me. You know, recognizing that they had had a consultant role open for a few months and they were doing just fine. So there was no responsibility on her part. She could have felt bad for me, but at the end of the day, this is her business and this is her name and this is her company. So she wouldn't bring someone on board that was going to negatively impact that. So recognizing that and acknowledging that And then also knowing that she trusted me enough to give me this huge engagement. She was there to support me if and when I made a mistake or was struggling or was challenged. Um, And she was able to support me through it. Overall, she was very positive about everything. But if there were maybe times that I maybe missed the mark, it wasn't the end of the world. It was, all right, how do we fix this? What can we do better if this happens next time? Or what do I need you to do to kind of smooth this over with the client for now? But it was always from a place of support. So it sounds like she also, there's a little bit of a safety net there too, because if you, if you had a misstep or did something wrong, you knew that she was going to be there to support you and you're just going to figure out a way to turn it around and make it better. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we're, I always remind myself and sometimes, you know, Jen even reminds us that most of what we can do is, is fixable. It's not life or death. Um, and they would say that in student affairs and higher education, um, but everything was treated as if it wasn't fixable or you weren't fixing it fast enough. And that little situations ultimately became life and death because seven different people heard about it and seven different people wanted a solution very quickly. Um, and it became where it was, Eric, the buck stops with you. You have to fix this. And when I would ask for help, it wasn't there because it was my problem in my area. Um, and my suggestion on, oh, well, this person needs to intervene. No, Eric, it's still your problem. You fix it. You're an assistant director. We're here. It's, can you fix it? How can I help you fix it? What do we need to do from this point forward? So the, the, even the, the way problems and situations were treated were very different. Um, and where, sh- where both parties said, oh, we support you, here I'm actually supported. And it's, it's lived. And I mean, our values are got your back, honest counsel, own it, family first. I mean, got your back is something that Jen and every other member of the team consistently does. And that's a prime example. We support you. Um, and they actually do step up to support you. So it's the difference between saying you have a certain value and actually living that value. Um, And actually, I got a chance to interview Jen the other day, and I I just want to read one of the quotes I got from her here because I just think it's so so, um, appropriate. She said, my approach to leadership is that it starts and ends with creating a culture of trust. Everything we do, from the policies we put in place, to the way we pay people, to the way we do performance development, to how we hold one-on-one conversations, to how we run team meetings, to how we do our company values, it's all centered around making that culture of trust. Mm -hmm. And And that's, I think, for me, the biggest thing is that, and again, 
ultimately Jen trusts us and we trust Jen. Whereas in the previous situation, it felt like it was distrust disguised as trust, if that makes any sense. It, does. Um, it was, I trust that you're going to be able to do what you do until I have to hear about it and it becomes my problem. Then all of a sudden I'm going to question your decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that doesn't necessarily happen here, but Jen's created an environment of trust and any company that is values driven and is focused on their core values. You, I have the opportunity and feel comfortable going to her first and saying, I don't know how to do this. I need guidance. Um, as where in the last situation I was in, I was never, I felt like, especially with the new director that if I ever went to him and said, I don't know how to do this, that would just be written down in a folder somewhere to be used against me in the future when ultimately he made the case to, to remove me from my position. So it is, trust is huge. And trusting her with the ability to be vulnerable has allowed me to grow in my confidence immensely um, in the past year that I've been here and just in general as an HR consultant. You know, you and I talked about this a little bit um, the last time we chatted, but uh, we, yeah, I have a higher education background too, for anyone listening who doesn't know that. And we talked about how in higher education, you're treated as though you are lucky to have a job there. Mm-hmm. Whereas in outside of higher education, you're, you're much more likely to be treated as though they are lucky to have you there. They mm-hmm. feel lucky that you, you accepted the position there. And that's not just true of higher ed. I mean, there are other industries as well, but it's very pronounced there. And that's what I hear you saying when, you know, it's the difference between saying your values and living your values or having distrust disguises trust. It's, it's really the difference between feeling as though your employees are lucky to be there and lucky to have a job and they should just come in and do what they're told and really feeling lucky that that you have a great team of people there to support you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's, it really, it, it's in everything that we do, the, the feeling of coming to work and, and being excited and being trusted. And, and that, that's, that makes all the difference. And, and I'll be the first to say, listen, I loved, I loved starting my career in higher education Specifically in my entry level position, I learned so much and it was hard and it was challenging, but I had met some of the greatest friends through that job and I had some of the greatest professional mentors through that. Um, And even in my mid-level position, I can speak at length about supervisors and colleagues who made it completely enjoyable going to work every day. It just goes to show when you see all this information out there, how one bad hire or one toxic employee who is not held accountable for their actions, their words, how that impacts the bottom line of the organization and how it impacts everyone. And I think a lot of what I was doing in my role before I left was playing interference. So no one else had to see it because at the end of the day, I, I didn't have to worry about housing because a lot of those individuals who work there, they are provided housing with their job. And they had a lot more to lose. Um, So me standing up for it was ultimately running interference because it couldn't impact them. I, if, if, and at the end of the day, I was okay. If I lost my job, if I left the job, I would be okay. I had somewhere to live. I could work at Trader Joe's part-time if I had to. Um, But at the end of the day, um, 
my point is higher ed has been great to me, but it is evident to me how one person can negatively impact so many people and not only want them to leave their position, but also want them to leave the field as a whole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you have any advice or words of wisdom for anyone of any gender really is struggling with imposter syndrome today. Yeah. And, and I, I want to say that it was hard because I would Google books, you know, and be like, okay, I want to read about imposter syndrome. And a lot of the books are focused on women, women of color. And as a white cisgendered male, I kind of felt like I was co-opting their experience if I, you know, was like, hey, is there anyone out there who's a guy who experienced imposter syndrome? Because I want to make sure that obviously women, individuals of color and women of color have the space to own their experience. And I didn't want to co-opt that. Um, I think that if you are lucky enough to be in an environment where you are supported and you've established a good relationship with your manager, talk through it with them. Identify to them the feelings that you're having of inadequacy of lack of confidence um, and be okay maybe sharing with your team and your manager when I do something well I need you to tell me because I'm not necessarily sure if I am meeting goals and expectations um, for me also it's a communication style so Jen and I have very different communication styles um, so recognizing um, what those communication styles are and acknowledging and asking someone who talks or communicates differently than you how do I know I'm doing a good job? And for Jen, a lot of the times it's no news is good news. Um, but until I said, how do I know until I asked her that question, I wouldn't have known. So even understanding the rhythms of the person that you're working with and asking them to identify how they give praise, how they acknowledge efforts. And I would say just to anyone, you know, no one, no company has to hire someone just to hire someone. They ultimately hired you for a reason. And any company that knows what it's doing will help that person grow into the position. Uh, so if you're expected to know every, everything from day one, eh, maybe you don't wanna work for that company, but if you're there and ultimately you like it, you have to realize that there is gonna be a learning curve. And I would say even a year in, I'm still challenged in, in confidence in certain things but I don't think anyone expects or anyone reasonable would expect you to know everything about the position, even at the conclusion of the first year. Mm -hmm. Just be patient with yourself. And I just want to do a little, uh, one more question on that point, because, you know, something I've been thinking a lot about lately are the, the, is the impact of this idea of safe spaces on college campuses and how it doesn't really allow people exposure to ideas that might make them uncomfortable, might push them outside their comfort zone, might teach them how to have productive conflict. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the value of being pushed beyond where you're comfortable in your professional experience? Yeah, I mean, the, the value ultimately for me was that the amount of self-belief and confidence that I got from being pushed to take on a huge engagement for the company was incredibly uh, valuable to me, right? And I think that there is some truth in being able to grow and getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Not to the point that it causes undue stress, anxiety, panic attacks, anything like that. That's where ultimately someone needs to, to put the stop and say it's not okay. But there is something to be said about stepping outside of your comfort zone 
especially if someone is nudging you outside of your comfort zone, it's because they have the belief in you and they know you can do it and they just want to see you reach your full potential. So nothing is accomplished unless you take a little bit of a risk. Uh, I mean, let's be honest, I left, I left my old position without a job lined up. And had I not taken that risk, I wouldn't be here right now. So there is, I think there is some truth in taking risk, being uncomfortable and taking a chance uh, because there is inevitably growth that comes with it. And you learn a lot about yourself and I would say that over the six months I was in that interim engagement, my confidence soared through the roof uh, in this role as well as with the company that I was, I was outsourced to. Awesome. Well, I don't have any other questions. Do you have anything else you'd like to add before we conclude? No, I'm, I'm great. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for Eric coming on and sharing his experience. He offered some awesome takeaways at the end that I won't try to resummarize. But the purpose of this conversation was to show that so many people, people that you would never expect, do struggle with confidence. And all too often when it happens to men, it's something that they feel like they have to keep inside and don't feel as comfortable talking about it. Thankfully, Eric has an amazing boss who helped him through it, and how ironic that the boss that helped him through it happened to be a woman. Now, if you want to join in on the conversation and tell me about some of the BS you've experienced at work, head over to nobsatwork.com. You'll fill out a short form just telling me how to get in touch with you and a quick word about what you want to talk about. Don't worry, you do not have to reveal your identity to come on the podcast. If you want to, that's perfectly fine. But you are also welcome to come on anonymously because I care far more about the experience than revealing who you are and the specific organization that you work for. So head over to nobsatwork.com. You'll also be able to find past episodes of the show. Now, if you enjoyed this conversation, I think you'll love my book. It's called Zen Your Work, and it's all about how to infuse mindfulness techniques into your work experience so you can reduce your stress, be more creative, be more productive, build better working relationships, and create a more fulfilling work experience. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me at zenworkplace.com. Of course, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, and you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Carlin B. Until next time, I sincerely hope you don't have too much BS at work, but if you do, we'll try to focus our energy in a more positive direction. Reach out to me, we'll have a chat, and we'll figure out what we can learn from it to do it better.